where are we coming together in diverse teams? If it's not in our neighborhoods, it's not in our schools, uh, it doesn't seem to be in our colleges. Where, what, what institution is bringing people together in a really unique way, in a way that's sort of larger than self, building bridges in really meaningful ways. High school and college have, again, have a lot of value, but where are you really being asked to lead? At the same time, where are you learning, you know, resilience and resourcefulness and agility and grit? Like, again, pieces of that can happen in all facets of life. But I think when you look at a year of national service, you're coming at all of those things in a very intense and intentional way. That's Zach Morin, a City Year alum and current member of the New Politics Leadership Academy Board, talking about the value and impact of a year of national service. I'm excited to lift up Zach's voice on today's episode for many reasons. Zach has spent most of his professional life championing the cause of national service in powerful and innovative ways. His service journey began when he joined City Year in Boston right after graduating high school. That's when he first crossed paths with our founder, Emily Cherniak. She was his direct supervisor during his year as an AmeriCorps member. After undergrad, Zach co-founded an organization called Serve Next that was designed to build political support for the cause of national service. Back in 2008, when he was still in his early 20s, he was instrumental in getting multiple presidential candidates to publicly affirm their support for the cause of national service. He went on to lead other organizations in the national service space, including serving as the executive director of Service Nation, and then moving on to become the executive director of Service Year Alliance. In 2018, he left the nonprofit space to jump in as the campaign manager for Ken Harbaugh, a Navy vet who ran unsuccessfully for Congress in Ohio. Today, he's the co-founder of Storied Hats, a purpose-driven apparel company that creates baseball hats that are made sustainably and are free from corporate logos. As I mentioned, Zach is a longtime supporter of our work and is currently on the board of the New Politics Leadership Academy. He's a valued member of our community, and his story is both a remarkable example of servant leadership and a powerful window into the recent history of the national service movement here in the U.S. It's an honor to have him on the show, and I'm excited to share his perspective and experiences with you all today. Zach Morin, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. So I have a question I always start with, which is, what's your earliest memory of learning the value of service? Uh, in There's a few things that come to mind. Um, one was just uh, parental exam. My parents, you know, my... Um, my mom was sort of social justice oriented. And so just, you know, different sorts of issues and causes were brought up around dinner, which I think was super important, especially just around fairness was really important. And um, one thing that that translated to in an early sort of defined experience, I did not love school, especially high school. And I was not unmotivated in general, but I was not super motivated when it came to school. I just wasn't, I was kind of like a restless boy. Um, and my parents were very supportive of me convincing, trying to convince the school to give me, let me leave as my senior year halfway through for an internship at a nonprofit. And um, I would say that was probably 
the first time that I had sort of, I don't even fully remember where the idea came from or why it, how, you know, how it all came together. But I think that was in terms of sort of a real commitment to service and servicing larger than myself um, at a young age. I think that was really the first meaningful experience. And I was grateful to have their support. And I was selfishly grateful to get out of school for half the day um, and go feel like I was actually doing something meaningful and impacting other people's lives. And that had a huge sense, you know, huge impact on my sort of my sense of like what, um, what role I could play that if I was willing to, to step into something that there was work to be done and uh, a lot of leadership skills to be gained um, from sort of stepping into the, uh, that unknown. Um, and so I think that was probably my first, first really meaningful sense of service. You remember what the nonprofit was? Like what yeah, sort of was, stuff were you doing? Yeah, yeah it, was the, it was the Pittsburgh AIDS Task Force. I'm from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they, were just, they did a ton of different types of work around, um, around the city of Pittsburgh. And so I just jumped into a bunch of different fundraising things and um, community outreach things and getting high school students involved. And so it was just a really, it was a really interesting time um, and uh, organization that was growing. And so they gave me, you know, but didn't have enough staff like most nonprofits. So they gave me a lot of rain to, to go out and make things happen. Wow. So even before you got out of high school, you were jumping into this nonprofit world. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and you grew up in Pittsburgh. Tell us a little bit more. Uh, t- what did your parents do? Give us a little more sense of kind of your life growing up. Sure. Um, so uh, my my sort of go-to description, like, so I joke that my mom gave me my heart, my dad gave me my brain. Um, that's an oversimplification because they both have each of those things. But um, my dad's a super practical guy. My mom's more idealistic, sort of free thinker. And, um, they got divorced when I was three. And so obviously there, that was, there was a bunch of challenges around that. Um, uh, and it was not, it was not a, it was not a pretty divorce as many of them aren't. Um, and so I think that was just sort of an early experience in dealing with something really challenging. And I think that gave mm. me, you know, an early sense sort of sense of resilience and fortunately both very loving parents, but also that's, you know, it's a super hard thing to go through. Yeah. Uh, for everybody, but they did everything they could to support me and my siblings in the process. And then um, my dad was an air pollution control engineer and my mm-hmm. mom, um, uh, she uh, didn't work for a bit when uh, we were all born, me and my siblings were born. And then um, and sort of a second career became a photographer. Mm-hmm. And Artist. Did a lot, yeah. yeah, did a lot of um, portrait photography. She, her sort of focus was black and white. She's old school. She had, there was a dark room in our basement. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I watched her focus on that business for a while, which was super interesting and early experience. And for me to observe someone sort of entrepreneurial sort of hustling, she's always a one person business. And so just sort of hustling to make things happen. And, um, uh, but Pittsburgh is a great city. I highly recommend if you haven't been to go and for anyone who hasn't been to go check it out. It's a great, it's a great city. It's a great middle sort of middle mid-sized city yeah. around um, and a lot of great neighborhoods. Yeah. I spent a little time there. I loved it. Loved yeah. It. I love, I, lo- I really like growing up there. Yeah. Great. So after high school, you chose to do an AmeriCorps year. You went to city or Boston. I did. So tell us how, how'd you make that choice? Um, it was, uh, again, motivated by not get right, get, wanting to go right to school. I think my brother, uh, was on his sixth year of undergrad. And when I told my parents, I was like, if I go right to college, I'm not going to do well. Um, I just needed a break from, from the classroom and selfishly, um, 
you know, I, I, I wanted something that I could make a little bit of money, but also wanted some sense of purpose. But I just, I really didn't know a lot. I think my sister said, recommended AmeriCorps. I'm still not entirely sure where I hmm. heard about it, but I think hmm. it was her. I applied and got into a few programs. And I think it was my sister was like, go with it, go with the one with the best, with the best, best reputation. And so I ended up in city year and I knew very little. I knew I'd have, I knew I'd have to wear a uniform. And I knew I'd have, to, and I knew I'd be working with kids and out and I'd go to Boston outside of that. I knew almost nothing else. Wow. Um, but I, you know, it was, so I went in pretty, pretty blind. Um, and then ended up thought it was going to be a year and then on to my next thing and on to undergrad and ended up being a fundamentally life-changing experience in a lot of different ways, which we can get into, but yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, it was, it was, it was a, not something I had a whole lot of like research or, you know, sort of full mm-hmm. understanding. I don't know if I had talked to anyone that had done city or, or done AmeriCorps. I just knew that there weren't a lot of options that could sort of, I didn't want to just sort of like get an hourly job and live at home. I wanted a little bit of an adventure I wanted to get out of home um, and I wanted to, you know, I need to earn a little bit of money. So um, those sort of lined up and city year ended up being the best, best fit for me. Yeah. And I know, you know, you ended up spending years of your life involved in the national service movement, but tell us about yeah. the service you did that year and how you think that AmeriCorps experience shaped you. Yeah. So I, I <clears throat> back to Pittsburgh, you know, my high school was very diverse. Um, it was 30, 40% people of color, um, a bunch of, socioeconomic classes across the different, uh, racial groups. And, um, yet it was, it was incredibly segregated, um, uh, for a bunch of different factors. And so I, you know, frankly, I left my high school experience, despite being in a very, uh, diverse school, I left with very non-diverse friends and relationships. And I don't know how much you think about that when you're 16, 17, I can't remember, um, but when I got to city year, it was incredible. It was very different. And, um, it really was just such a, uh, incredible experience to be connected to people and really get to know people who, um, you would have never otherwise met with different backgrounds who, again, you could be walking to school, walking the halls of a school with them for four years. And then here I was and sort of within a couple months having deep connections and relationships and em- understanding and empathy with people, um, who made many of them looked like the, the, the kids I went to high school with, but who I got to know very little. Um, and that was, um, a really empowering life-changing experience about how, as a society getting increasingly diverse and, you know, in so many, in so many ways, increasingly divided. And so just having that formative experience early. And I was, I went into, when I went into city or I was 19, um, and really seeing a different way of when there's an organization institution that really thinks about how to build bridges and bonds across lines, that there's really so much to be gained. That was sort of the first, that was to me, when I think back about city year, that's like probably the top, the top sort of personal growth and sort of, eye-opening aspect to it. And then it was, it was, you know, really in a little bit with my internship, but even more so in city year and AmeriCorps is just how much sort of leadership opportunity you're given. And then how much you realize of yourself about what you're capable of doing when it comes to leading teams, leading children, having an impact in the community. Um, just, and then all the different pieces of being an effective community-based leader, understanding the assets of the community, understanding what needs to get done, um, helping to get it done, bringing in partners, um, all that sort of stuff. So it was just, it was, I think for me, the really at the, again, at the young formative age, given the opportunity to lead and then seeing what's possible and the outcomes were just, just a really sort of life-changing experience when you're, 
when someone enables you to sort of um, fulfill, you know, I don't want to say fulfill potential, but hit another sort of layer or level mm-hmm. of potential mm-hmm. at a young age, it really changes sort of what you think you can do moving forward. It sort of raises the bar for yourself. And that was just a, that was just a really empowering part of it. Um, and then Boston was great. Boston's a great city. And this was kind of city year 1.0, right? It was before yeah, the yeah. whole focus on it, but it sounds like it, it's, you were in schools, correct? So I was, in, a, I was in East Boston. Yeah. I was in okay. East Boston four days a week. We're in yep. teaching a social justice curriculum during the day. And then, mm. you know, just adding capacity to after school an after school program, a community center that had a lot of kids. And I think one full-time staff member said so 30, 40 kids running there at three o'clock. And with, I think a quarter, a third of my team was in, was, we were spread out the 12 of us, but a third of, I think three or four of us were in this one community center. And just like, it was super basic homework help um, and mentoring type stuff, but just like really value add because instead of a 40 to one ratio of adults to, uh, to students, it was, you know, 10 to one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to, I got to work with this, some of the same kids every, you know, four days a week, all year. And just see their growth and build those relationships and see what they're, you know, and watch their potential um, really grow over the course of the year was really meaningful. And having those relationships for an entire year with those students was just something really special. Awesome. Awesome. And I have to ask, yeah. our founder, Emily Cherniak, was your program manager. She was. She you was. know her way back in the day. Uh, what was she like back then? Can you give us a story about Emily? Uh, <laughs> um, it's 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 funny how much we both grow and how little we change in so many ways <laughs> in the sense that like she was the things I love about her. And, you know, I think most people love about her is just like, she's so committed to the people around her. Um, she's so committed to the mission. Uh, she has willing to have hard conversations um, and is someone who you just like at any time you can, you want in your corner Um and I, you know, I don't, you know, I, I wish I had some fun or embarrassing stories to say. Unfortunately, I don't. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just like you just think about what we want in a leader. It's just someone who's just so focused on um, what's best for the sort of situation and just constantly putting themselves sort of, sort of putting their own pers- using their perspective, but also not putting themselves at the center of it. And I think a lot yeah. of leaders, you know, a lot of leaders who have room to grow, like you know, room for improvement, is like they often put themselves at the center of a problem. And Emily's always thinking about how do we put the problem at the center of the problem yeah. or the needs at the center of the problem or who's, you know, so I just think I just, and she was doing that when I knew, you know, when I first met her 20, yeah, 25 years ago, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah, been a servant right. leader all the way. Exactly. Nice. nice. Yeah. So you end up going to GW, which I did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after graduation, you founded an organization called ServeNext and served right. as ex- executive director. So tell us about ServeNext. What was, it, what was its mission? Kind of how'd you get into it and, and what'd you do in that role? Yeah. So a few months after I finished AmeriCorps, this life-changing, this surprisingly life-changing experience, I ended up in DC for school. And I think the first month I was there, um, Congress tried to, for the first time, tried to eliminate, uh, not all of Congress, a few, few active members of Congress tried to eliminate AmeriCorps like from what it was to zero, zero, zero right. dollars, zero dollars, zero members. Um, <clears throat> and that was shocking, you know, incredibly, you know, shocking to everybody. Um, and I had the advantage of being in DC where sort of this fight was going to happen, um, to save it. And, um, City Year, the, the, the founders of City Year, led by Alan Casey and a number of others really rallied. And I was in DC. And so as an alum, fresh off this life-changing experience, I was able to be sort of front and center 
to the effort to do something about it. Um, and long story short, it was saved. Um, and I actually think there was an increase in the budget. It was a really amazing. Yeah, it's an incredible thing. story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then we watched for the next four years as the budget wasn't sort of threatened to zero, but it was maybe it was threatened to zero, but it wasn't zeroed out, but it was sort of, you could just sort of the bar graph was going the wrong direction. So my senior year, some people that I'd served with, um, one who was in DC with me and then some others that were in different parts of the country. Uh, we said, you know, AmeriCorps programs are really politically limited in what they can do, but the problem is a political problem. So it needs a political solution. And so we, and at the same time, we knew just like us, there were tons of alum, alums around the country, um, all sorts of other allies of this movement who um, could be engaged, but weren't being asked to do anything. We were in DC, so we could do something, but what about everyone else who's a voter, a constituent? Um, let's really mobilize the army of people who support this, so this movement and let's ask them to use their voice because they're voters and constituents and um, um, running organizations or businesses in these districts where these members of Congress, you know, represent. And so uh, the idea behind Serve Next, we started in 2007, was that there needed to be a separate organization from AmeriCorps that was just explicitly political, that could do all the things that not, you know, a lot of 501c3s, I don't want to get too technical, can't do, yep. but we really needed to mobilize the human capital of this movement year round in the, at the grassroots level where constituents or where members of Congress meet their constituents and, and where the impact of community uh, impact of service organizations is happening. Um, and so we did that for, we were at that for, for, for a while um, and really believe that, you know, if you're going to be successful as an issue in the political environment, you need to be year round constantly building. It's a, it's a 10, 20 year endeavor, if not, you know, and ideally indefinite, there are no success. There are very few su issues successfully successful politically that sort of come and go right. um, that really needs to be sort of a permanent infrastructure to the political piece. And so we did that for a number of years and the organization evolved to do a bunch of different things, which I can talk about. Um, but we really believe that, you know, part of caring about service is also stepping outside of what is comfortable in the sense that a lot of people serve in, uh, in part because they, you know, they're apolitical. They want to have an impact, but they don't politics is messy politics. Yep. And yep. I think maybe we're seeing that change in some of the younger generations, but when we were getting started, there was a lot of like, oh, I want to, I'll serve at a nonprofit, I'll serve in America, but I don't want to do the politics. Yeah. And one of our beliefs is that you have to think about holistically what an issue needs and how you can use your voice and your leadership and your commitment um, uh, in order to bring that issue's needs into an environment, into a context, the political context that, re that is, um, uh, is going to sort of decide the budget. Yeah. Um, it may not be fun. It may not be exciting to talk about policy process and appropriations and the federal government, and all that stuff. But if you care about more people serving their country, if you care about more core members in schools or working on climate change or working in a public health clinic, then you sort of have to care about this other piece because without this other piece, a lot of that goes away. Yep. Yep. So I think the challenge we were sort of issuing to fellow alums was we got we to gotta get beyond our comfort zone because that's part of what being of service requires. It requires us to think outside of the context where we're just comfortable in and think about sort of back to Emily, what does the issue need? What does the problem need? And then we have to do, go do that, even if it's not our first instinct. And I would love to invite you to share some of your stories. You, you all got some amazing things happen. So, yeah. so tell us a little bit about kind of the highlights in the, uh, the of that adventure. Yeah. I mean, our, our, 
our belief was that you know the DC advocacy in DC is a set is central to any sort of uh, advocacy and policy campaign. But just as much, uh, if not more, in our belief, especially with social issues that don't have a lot of financial capital but have a lot of human capital around the country, that you have to sort of be vocal as a constituent, as a voter. And when we were getting started, I think this may be what you're alluding to, we were getting started, it was around the presidential election in 2008. And this is, we were in 2007. And so where are all the candidates in 2000, you know, a year before an election, they're in New Hampshire and Iowa. Uh, New Hampshire's smaller than Iowa. So we said, let's go to New Hampshire. And so one of our co-founders had served in city of New Hampshire and you know, every candidate was doing backyard. We started early. Every, so when they were doing, you know, early in the race, so like they were doing backyard bar, the future president was doing backyard barbecues with like 40 people. Um, and so we would just, we would recruit volunteers, a lot of people who had done AmeriCorps and City Year who were now alums, and they would just show up and they would say, what are you going to do to expand AmeriCorps? It keeps getting cut. Will you, will you, if you're elected president, will you commit to expand that? Um, and just, Dozens, dozens, I think probably at the end, hundreds of times we asked these questions. And eventually, I think we got nine, I think every, every Democratic candidate and then McCain sort of a verbal commitment to sign a pledge that said they would triple AmeriCorps if they're elected. I mean, it was double AmeriCorps that ended up uh, tripling in the legislation. And so mm-hmm. um, that then helped lead to the Serve America Act, which is big national service legislation. And, and our, it, sort of, it was very validating that if you go to where the power is and you are, they wanted the votes of those constituents. And this is an issue that they supported. Um, um, and there was, there was a lot, it took, some, it took us a lot of time to get some of the candidates on board. Um, and so the combination of sort of being where the power is at combined with persistence, combined with sort of persuasive arguments, um, around the issue was just a really effective thing. And so then we, you know, after that, we then said, we've got to do this now on a congressional level. So then we, we expanded our capacity to go to sort of key congressional districts, both around election season, but also just around sort of year, sort of back to saying earlier, you got to be year round if you're going to have an impact in sort of any sort of movement building. And so, um, we, <clears throat> me, we ended up going, year, you know, doing, uh, looking at sort of mapping out the congressional, uh, committees and just figuring out strategically where could we be that could have the most impact for this field. But it was very empowering to watch a group of alums who were not super political, but said, you know, they had it in, they knew they had a personally impactful experience. Yeah. Then yep. go share that. And that's really often enough when it comes to a place to start in politics is this was my experience. This is why it means something. This is why it matters. This is why it can matter to more people. Where do you stand? And I'm going to keep showing up here and tell you the story. And so are my friends until we, you know, as constituents and as voters, until you really give us, you know, give us some uh, a real answer on this and ideally support it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And you guys were all 25, 26, something like that. I mean, yeah, maybe even younger, uh, yeah, 23. Maybe even younger and yeah, with a video yeah. camera and getting these folks on on video and kind of yeah. putting this thing on the national agenda. That's right. And, That's you know, right. for listeners who don't know about the Serve America Act. I know there's a lot of folks who just aren't so familiar with this kind of national service history. Tell us a little bit about it and and why it was important. Um, well, it was it was the first, it was, two, it was passed in 2009, so we're going back a little bit, but yeah. it was really the first big legislation since 93 on, serv- on national service, um, if I'm remembering correctly. There's been sort of annual, obviously the, the budget gets approved every year in Congress, yep. but there hadn't been sort of any proactive sort of big next steps 
Um, and so that's what really sort of was happening in the 2007, 2008, 2009 period um, uh, that sort of led to, um, led to that moment. And, but really what helped enable that moment was that national service had been having an impact in, you know, AmeriCorps at least, you know, and then other programs as well had been having an impact since 1993. Um, and it had grown to just a pretty big apparatus of an ecosystem of organizations operating in tens of thousands of communities, probably every congressional district, certainly every state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was call- it was time to sort of say, okay, we sort of, you know, movements and ideas take time, but it's now, you know, been, you know, 15, it has proved years, itself. 20 years. Right. Like, let's, let's, yeah. let's, 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 let's really get this into the next phase of growth. And so that's what was, that was really all about. And um, it had, there was some challenge, there was some wins there and there are also some real setbacks there. Um, and frankly, we're still trying to figure out how to get Nashville to grow to sort of the scale that it should be. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of excitement and also some disappointment that it was never yeah, quite funded sure. the way it was supposed to. It, you know, the, the idea was to dramatically expand participants in AmeriCorps and it, it kind right. of never, never got funded. Uh, so the, the work continues. Work continues. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Was, and and uh, who are the other folks who were part of this? One was Matt Wilhelm, right? Matt Another Wilhelm one. was our co- one, a co-founder. He was the one that was sort of on the ground leading all the work in New Hampshire. Yep. Um, Aaron Marquez, who I did sit here with, and he was at Georgetown. So we were both yep. in D.C. and his, his sort of his, his push initiative to say, we really got to get the political voice. Like we're, we're not tied to any AmeriCorps programs. Let's go get a little bit radical. Um, and then one of his friends named Patrick Schmidt, um, uh, who was in school with him and, and helped sort of, there's sort of four of us, um, you know, bootstrap. And I still have the sheet where we sort of listed everyone who we knew and there was like $50 or $75 and next to their name with a check marker and X. And we just, yeah. we literally raised our first $2,000, $50, dollars at a time, much like a political campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, we just sort of kept going and that gave us some money to, I think, get some stuff happening in New Hampshire. And then we just kept going from there. Yeah. It's amazing. And Matt Wilhelm has been on the podcast here. He's, he went on to run for office and he's now in yes. the state ledge in New Hampshire. And Aaron Marquez is a school board member and has run for uh, Congress and state ledge. Right. Uh, in Arizona. So That's right. uh, yes, they, it, you leaders. can see the path. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it started awesome. in there, you know, and I don't, you know, and it started with, you know, what's exciting about their trajectory and their progress is uh, they were willing to sort of insert themselves and sort of as an advocate and a movement builder. And then from service to then advocacy and then uh, then running for office, you can sort of clearly map their their progress. And so I think that's, that's really exciting for uh, for anyone who's sort of thinking about where they fit in this and how they progress and how what's comfortable is. Sure, you can go from, you know, point A to point D if you feel comfortable, but also, it's, you know, you can also take a bunch of steps to sort of get comfortable and confident and, and figure out where you fit, fit in the movement. Yep. You can serve through politics. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So 2012, ServNext was acquired by another organization in the national service space called Service Nation. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Service Nation and how that transition happened and kind of what, what did it mean for the work you were doing? Yeah. I mean, the, the um, as an organization, you know, I'm a big believer in being clear eyed and honest with yourself about where things stand. And the truth is we were having a really hard time raising money for the political work. Um, and you know, we were a small team um, with a board and we decided, you know, you know, we, we were working closely with Service Nation, which shared our vision of, a, of universal national service, but had some different approaches, um, complementary, but different. And we had to decide whether we wanted to be 
you know, if we wanted to sort of stay small or join something larger um, with more firepower, uh, a bigger board, more money, more people. And ultimately, I think if you're going to put the mission first, titles have to become a distant second, if not third or fourth or completely irrelevant. Um, you've got, you know, you've got to be willing to give up some control again, if you're going to put the mission first. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't, you know, and I knew we were never going to reach our potential if we stayed the size you're at. And I felt like we had given most of what we had and there wasn't sort of like a clear rationale for staying fully independent. And if you can find, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, if you can find a good partner whose values align, mm-hmm. you know, people and leadership you respect. Um, I think any organization, you know, I think nonprofit mergers acquisitions should happen more frequently if they can, yeah. if you, you know, if you can find those things in a partner and in, in an organization that's going to acquire you, then I think you should give that a hard look. It's not necessarily for everyone different. Every situation is unique, mm-hmm. but it gave us a chance to have more resources, to have a bigger team. Um, and frankly, when you're doing hard things, just like being, you know, we were at smaller than I think we were three or four full-time people at the time. So this is very small stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you're that small, you're trying to do something national, having more people around just like is energizing and empowering and feels good. So like all the things, it, it made sense for all sorts of reasons. And we were grateful we did it. And it gave us a chance to sort of take the sort of grassroots political work that we had started and given it a platform and a home where it could do even more. And tell us a little bit more about what Service Nation was working on. What sort of work were they doing? And yeah, I mean, they were the impact. lead organ. Yeah, they yeah. were the lead organization behind the server, the, the historic Serve America Act. Um, and then um, I think they were looking for ways to figure out how to continue to sort of understanding that in Congress, you can pass that you can get uh, uh, a legislation passed that's multiple years, but it has to get funded. Yeah. Every single year, and so I think Service Nation at the time was saying, "Okay, we got we helped get this legislation passed, but the appropriations process is annual. Um, what can what role can we play in sort of continuing to fight that fight?" And so we were out there fighting that fight, but on a, on a pretty small scale. We wanted to be bigger. They wanted to um, sort of you know continue to invest in that in that in fulfilling the promise of that legislation. And so it just, it made a lot of sense. So they were, I think they were looking for sort of what was their ongoing contribution to that work going to be. And we were sort of an example of what it could be. And so um, it just made a lot of sense for, for sort of the timing to, to come together like that. Yeah. Great. Great. And then in, in 2016, you became executive director of Service Year Alliance. So now we're, it's a, a third organization that's deeply involved in the service space. Yeah. Tell us about Service Year Alliance and what they were doing and, and give some highlights from kind of the impact of that org. Yeah. So the, the so Service Nation was moving along well. And then there is a group that had started a tech platform to help better match young people and with service opportunities with AmeriCorps positions, um, the technology behind a fi- you know, exploring opportunities and applying and getting connected, um, with the positions, um, was very antiquated. Um, and if you're a young person and we all sort of, you know, we're so, so used to like good, like web interfaces and streamlined technology. Sure. Yep. And if you're interested in five service programs, you have to f- apply to five different places. It's just not a great user experience. And so there was a group of people that were starting a tech platform. And then there was um, another group called the Franklin Project out of the Aspen Institute, started by General McChrystal, um, 
who was sort of working on convening sort of big thought partners, influential Americans to push universal service. So Service Nation was sort of this policy advocacy grassroots group. There's a tech platform. Um, and then there was General McChrystal's group, Franklin Project. And, you know, all chasing this, the same sort of vision of universal service. Uh, anything that big is really hard. And like I was saying earlier, if you got more people working together, you're more likely to achieve it. And so it just, you know, with the help of some funders and the boards, it just made sense to sort of come, bring those three groups together officially, not just sort of close partners, but really get under the same roof. Um, and so we did that merger, I think in 2015 and made one organization, which is, which is now Service Your Alliance. And so I was there for a couple more years after the merger. Um, and it gave sort of the national service movement, you know, a really strong sort of quote unquote backbone organization that was thinking about the grassroots advocacy and the policy, thinking about the user experience and the marketing for young, how to reach young people and get them engaged in sort of a modern way. And then it was sort of also bringing in sort of influential Americans and sort of a, be able to reach, um, you know, um, sort of high level people and get them their voice into the mix. And so it enabled us to have a really comprehensive approach to, to pushing forward towards the big idea. Yeah, so multifaceted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite things about this work at New Politics is how we bring together military vets and national service folks and other mm -hmm. servant leaders. And sometimes these folks don't know much about the other the, the other person's world. Mm -hmm. So I know you were on TV, you were a spokesperson for nationals. Give us the pitch for for universal national service. Why? Why were you so dedicated to this vision? So if you think about um the sort of the role of like high school and college over the 20th century, we, as a society, we built those institutions to prepare young people for life and career. And those are great and they have a role. Um, but as we've you know, moved into the 21st century, I would strongly argue that those are important, but insufficient on their own. Um, what we have in the, in right now is an increasingly diverse society that's increasingly isolated. 91% uh, of employers, one report says, undergrads are not prepared for the workforce. We have an array of social challenges um, that need human capital. As General McChrystal likes to talk about in this country, we talk a lot about uh, rights but not responsibilities. And we have all signs of younger generations from millennials to Gen Z want to have an impact, want purpose-driven work. Um, and so if you sort of bring all that together, you know, what experience is sort of is, is, is encompassing all of those pieces that's enabling people to have a sense of purpose early in life, to feel part of something, to realize, like I would say about my own life, my own AmeriCorps journey, that from an early age, you can be a leader, you can be civilly engaged, your voice matters, your leadership matters, you can, you can make a difference. Um, where are we coming together in diverse teams? If it's not in our neighborhoods, it's not in our schools, uh, it doesn't seem to be in our colleges. Um, college is inherently not diverse if you're in a four-year college at least. Um, where, wh what institution is bringing people together in a really unique way, in a way that's sort of larger than self, building bridges in really meaningful ways? Um, High school and college have, again, have a lot of value, but where are you really being asked to lead in any of those in a sort of right. a deeply meaningful way where you're accountable right. to a community, you're accountable to a young person, you're accountable to a community partner um, in a way that really sort of changes how you view yourself. Um, at the same time, where are you learning, you know, resilience and resourcefulness and agility and grit? Like, again, P 
pieces of that can happen in all facets of life. But I think when you look at a year of national service, you're coming at all of those things in a very intense and intentional way that for the most part, you're just maybe outside of the military and a couple other unique experiences. You're just really not getting in American society at any close, at at any close yeah. to scale. And so I think we have to ask ourselves as a society, like what experiences are we, are we creating for, you know, the 18 plus 18 to 30, 18 to 28 range that puts that all together. And at the same time, helps set people up for success in life, pays, you know, a, a decent, you know, you know, enough of a stipend to make it accessible and equitable. And that also says, you know, we'll help you pay for school. And there is the AmeriCorps scholarship, which is still needs, is, is needs to go up quite a bit. But, you know, this idea that, you know, you invest in your country, your country will invest in you. Um, you put yourself out there for a bit. We're going to help you with your next stage of life. Um, I think is really meaningful. So when I look at sort of all of the things that we need in our society, all the things that young people need to be successful in sort of the 21st century, there just aren't a lot of experiences at scale that are set up for that sort of match. And so when I look at service and a year of sort of full-time national service, I think it's the best idea I've seen um, at scale um, that um, can sort of achieve all of those things, which is a lot, but I want, you know, it did for me and, yeah. I've, seen, and I've, I've talked to hundreds, thousands of others yep. before. Um, and it's not to say it's, it, there's a lot of improvements that we've got to make and a lot of changes we have to make around making it more accessible and equitable and connecting it to certain career paths. But I think we're off to a really good start. And if we can help modernize it a bit in sort of addressing sort of some of the current challenges, I think it could be the defining experience of the 21st century. In 1910, I think it was 18% of young people were enrolled in high school. By 1940, it was 72 or 73%. Yep. Um, so as a society, we have made decisions to build institutions that reflect what we need. Right. And the question I like to pose is like, what's the, you know, what can we, can we make that decision? Can we decide that national service is the institution we're going to build for the 21st century? Yeah. So the idea is young people are, are not fully prepared to be citizens if they haven't done a year of service yeah. um, and had that experience. Yeah. And, it, and it, yeah. to me, it's not just, it's not, it's, there's, there's, you know, at Service Your Alliance, uh, our, our slogan was, uh, uh, our tagline was, uh, greater you, better us. And so there's, uh, there's, this is, there's an amazing intersection, national service of purpose, impact and self-interest. This is, I don't think, uh, you know, this is not just about being, you know, you know, being just, you know, going out and figuring out how you can serve someone else every day, but it's also figuring out how you can become more of who you want to be, how you can achieve some of your goals and dreams, whether it's, you know, helping to pay for college, helping to get the job because you've done something important. Um, for the country, for your community. Love it. Love it. Um, I'm a true believer as well. Uh, <laughs> true believer. That's why I do this yeah. work as well. So in 2018, you left Service Year Alliance and you jumped right into politics. You became the campaign manager for Ken Harbaugh. Ken I was did, a, yeah. a Navy pilot, co-founder of The Mission Continues, a remarkable nonprofit that engages military vets in service back home. He ran for Congress to represent Ohio's 7th District and was a Democrat running in a really strongly Republican district, ended up losing the campaign. But you jumped in, uh, you know, after doing all this work that was kind of like building political power, you were actually working on a political campaign. Mm-hmm. What was it like shifting from kind of that world of national service back into in, into campaign politics? Yeah, it was amazing. I, um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, as you talked about, and then so Ohio um, isn't far, but this was rural. This is pretty rural Ohio, different than city. Um, 
And, you know, the first thing is like, uh, fine, you know, Ken is someone who I believed in deeply. And so like everything else didn't really matter. The fact that he was a long shot candidate didn't really matter. Um, it was, a, it was, you know, find people you believe in, find the sort of servant leaders. And then I think if you have a chance to work with them or for them. You do that if you, if you can. Um, so that was just the first thing was just like 10 um, was the important, most important part of that piece for me. Um, and then, you know, it was, I was only there for, I was there for the last three months of the campaign. And um, it was, uh you know, I, I always like to find experiences again, starting with sort of make sure I'm on board with the people, but then like, where am I going to be challenged and put outside of my comfort zone? And certainly being in, this was a, a district that voted, that voted for uh, Obama in 08. And then um, uh, Romney, I believe the next time around. So it was a very, it was a district that had, had, had swung a bit. Um, and Ken was challenging a, a longtime incumbent Republican um, who was not a bad person, but was not a good member of Congress in the sense mm. that just didn't work hard for their constitu- for his constituents. And so it felt really valuable to be in a place where, yes, I was I'm a Democrat and helping to flip a seat was valuable. But also, I think it's really I, I think regardless of what party you're in, like you have an obligation to, to try to create change for a constituents. And when you don't see that happening. Um, it's really frustrating. So I was just excited to be in a place where a could possibly flip a seat, B, someone who's actually going to serve their constituents in a really thoughtful and meaningful way. And Emily often talks about how, you know, she also came through city year and was really involved in the service world. And then when she got involved in campaign politics, working on Alan Kazin's campaign, it was just like a whole new, mm-hmm. a, a whole new world opened up. Did you f- feel that way that, here's a whole bunch of things that you hadn't understood or it was pretty familiar to you. Like how was the uh, transition into politics for you? A little bit of both. So I'd spent, I spent two weeks, I think on Alan's campaign when he ran for Senate. Yep. Uh, so I'd sort of seen some of the internal workings of just like, you know, what a campaign office is like and roles and, you know, constituent outreach and door knocking. And I spent 10 days in Iowa for Obama in 2008 just as a volunteer. Um, so I'd seen sort of pieces of it for short periods of time. Um, but I think the, you know, one of the, um, one of the, I think, so it wasn't, nothing was sort of a total shock to me or totally, totally foreign. Um, but it was, um, it was sort of, of course, being on a full time, is obviously a bit more intense. Um, but it was also, to me, it was one, again, it's sort of back to Ken and why I think finding candidates you really respect and who are sort of servant leaders so important was, so much about what was exciting and inspiring day to day was how much sort of idea oriented the campaign was in the sense of like, here are the things we want to do um, to make change. And here are the policies we have. And here are, here's the type of leader I will be, be I being Ken in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just, it was just a really, um, it was a new sort of take on what it looks like. You know, most of the leadership that I had experienced myself or sort of observed or been mentored by was sort of in the community, mm. sort of at national nonprofits. But seeing that take place, in, in some ways, it was very similar, but in a political environment, which is really inspiring because I yeah. think so many times, so many, so often we think a lot of politics is a lot of sort of like um, sort of just messiness and, and petty. And there certainly is plenty of that. Um, and there's certainly a lot of fundraising. But I thought it was just, it was just really inspiring to see that the, the difference between sort of focus on issues 
wasn't that different when mm. you have a servant leader who wants to focus on the issues yeah. and not sort of on just the power or the sort of back and forth of how do you one up the attack ad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just a really, so I think like, when you find candidates like that, it becomes just a really, it becomes less about the nonsense that so often gets associated with politics if you read headlines, um, but really about the issues and about the people. And so that was, to me, it was, it was actually not, not feeling a stark contrast between, like, I didn't feel like I was leaving the issues on the side with, 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 a, mm. servant like, with mm-hmm. a servant leader like Ken. Yeah, I love it. And you know, I've had a chance to meet him. He's a he's a remarkable servant leader. And, yes, uh, yes. Doesn't surprise me to hear those stories. Yeah. So I know after the Harbo campaign, you jumped into the into the private sector. You're doing a really some really interesting stuff, and I'm going to get to that. But I have to ask, kind of, what's your take on the state of the national service movement today? Where do you think it is at this moment? Yeah, um, it's a great question. It's it's stagnant in the sense of um, I think uh, in terms of growth. So the political the political side has been really hard. Um, there's been you know a group of people who are you know try really hard every day on that, but it, you know the political apparatus for national service is still too small, too underfunded. Um, uh, so credit to the people who are in that fight, but there there, there needs to be a lot more of them if we're going to win um, and see growth. Um, and then the other piece is you know, the, the, a lot of aspects of the movement need to be modernized. The stipend needs to go up. The scholarship needs to go up. Um, some of the messaging needs to change, especially to attract the Gen Z where there's a lot of aspects of sort of like, you know, we got to like tear down the system from a lot of different sides of, 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 uh, ideologies or a lot of different ideologies. And I think as much as, we like to talk about serving your country, serving, you know, serving your nation, national service that probably has to adjust a bit um, to appeal to younger people. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have the same work and the same outcome, but I think the sort of national call to service is not resonating right now. And so mm-hmm. I think, to think about how um, we're, we're messaging it a bit differently, you know, recruitment numbers are way down uh, right now um, yeah. and that's not good. And that's, there's a bunch of factors involved right. with that. Um, but I think, I don't think any movement can be successful. It doesn't ask itself hard questions about, you know, when it's faced with some challenges, you talk to any program leader, whether it's big ones like city or small ones, they're all struggling with recruitment. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's not that young people don't want to serve and have an impact. They do. And all the polling on the issue suggests that, but I think it means that we've got to think about what the experience looks like and how that's reformed and updated and modernized to make it something that young people can see themselves doing that speaks to them, that meets them where they're at. And then frankly, just like the basics of like making sure the pay and the scholarship is, is something that more people can consider. Um, and so I think that's going to require some, some changes at the congressional level mm-hmm. um, and the, at the federal agency level. Um, but I certainly think if we're willing to ask ourselves hard questions, then, we can, then those changes can happen and it can become a more accessible, equitable experience for more people. And, you know, every movement, every ecosystem, I mean, AmeriCorps started in 1993. I think there's nothing unique that 30 years later or surprising that you've got to, add, you know, that you need to sort of look at yourself. And Update it. Changes. Yep. Yeah. And like, that's not, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the fact that recruitment numbers aren't down or are down should not be, it's a, it's a challenge, but it doesn't, it shouldn't be a sense of defeat. It should be a sense of, all right, let's figure this out. We know young people want to serve. They want to have an impact. Okay. What do we do to appeal to them? What, mm-hmm. Let's think about some choices, We some changes we have to make. So. I see all those issues as sort of just, if we're willing to ask, you know, have the tough conversations, there's nothing we can't figure out. And if you figure it out, then you can make the case for growth. And if you yeah. can figure out the political side, you can continue to sort of grow the movement. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And if there are listeners who are excited by this idea, how might they learn more or get involved in supporting yeah. national service? Yeah, I think there's, um, I think Service Your Alliance is the first place to go. Um, there's different ways to get involved there. And 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 then there's, it's for more of the politi- policy advocacy side, there's Voices for National Service. Voices for National Service. Yeah. Great, great. And if you're a young person who's interested in the year of service, there's serviceyear.org. That's right. Right. Perfect. So that's exactly right. Yep. That's that technology solution. So if that's you're right. interested in finding a, a service experience that works, yeah, you can there's check positions that out. there. Yep. Great. So you've been an early champion of new politics. You're currently a member of our board of directors. Why do you think this work is important and, and what do you want listeners to know about what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love new politics and I think I've been on the board of the C3 since the start, the 501C3 side. And I, I look at, you know, I, I look at my own journey through, um, I was not political. I was not political in high school or even um, in AmeriCorps. And it took some time even after AmeriCorps to, for that to fully, fully sort of, growing me. Um, uh, and I think about when people who are deeply committed to other people and to communities, uh, they can sometimes be, like I was saying earlier about alums and getting them to advocate for national service. They can feel like that's not for me. That's a distraction. Uh, that's a whole world. I don't understand whether you find it ugly or intimidating, right. um, whatever it is, but ironically, those are exactly the type of people we need in politics. The people who are often turned off by politics because they want to get things done are the, you know, the people we want in politics. And so sort of that irony is why I, I love everything about new politics, because if we can get more people who are just, who are focused on the issues and focus on the impact, um, things fundamentally change. I, 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 I'm not really a big believer in generalizations, but like pretty much everything comes down to leadership and people. Um, and uh, yes, systems matter, but people created those systems. And it's going to take people to change those systems. Exactly. Right. And so if we don't think of it, so we have to sort of think upstream. Um, and I just think the way new politics has built a comprehensive um, organization around what it takes to support people. And under your leadership, you're, you're one of the first people hired, maybe even the first. Um, and so just really getting deep into that, helping people pursue follow, you know, understand their own orientation to this, their own journey um, is just such critical work because if we don't help in a really meaningful way, people explore their own sense of leadership and identity within a larger um, um, sort of sense of reflection about where they can have the most impact, I think we're going to leave a lot of incredible talent um, outside of our political uh, ecosystem. And that's okay if some people don't want to do it. Not, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Right. But if there's people who are willing to consider it and we're not asking them to consider it, we're doing a disservice um, to uh, our communities and to our country. Um, and so I'm just always inspired by you and by Emily and the whole team around helping people on that journey because it's not an easy one. That's not necessarily one that happens quickly. And this is long-term work, but if yeah. we do it diligently um, it can it can inspire a lot of people to, to, to lead in ways they never thought possible. And uh, one of the reasons I care a lot about politics is not about the winning and losing, 
but you just have a lever for change that you don't usually have when you're at an isolated nonprofit. Right. Um, certainly there are some big ones out there that have huge, massive impact. But when you think about where a lot, you know, where a lot of the big levers happen, it's in policy at all levels. Mm-hmm. And if we get people in there with the right orientation towards who they're serving and what their goal is of being there and their pur- their real purpose of being in being there is if we go sort of the left of the equation and get those people in, uh, the impact will be will be pretty amazing. Love it, love it, great, thank you, thank you, and we appreciate your your ongoing championship and, and yeah. support of this work. An honor, really, is an honor right. to be on the board. So after this whole, you know, uh, years and years in the national service movement and being a campaign, you know, campaign manager and all that, now you've launched Storied Hats. So kind of a change of direction, but also has this real purposeful core. Tell us about Storied Storied Hats and what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, life is random sometimes, and um, uh, sir, I'm not a big apparel guy. Such a funny transition, um, but I wear hats constantly. I get my hair cut like three times a year. And when I wear things, whether it's a hat or anything else, I look for, uh, I don't like logos all over my body, mm-hmm. especially on my forehead. And I like sustainability. Apparel is among the dirtiest industries in the world. Um, uh, or cotton is prob. I think cotton is considered the most toxic crop, most toxic thing we grow. Mm. Um, I think it's 8% of aggregated land and like 25% of pesticide and insecticide use. Um, there's all sorts of other um, examples. Uh, new wool, in, you know, versus recycled wool is that there's a 24x difference in greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. Um, all sorts of different things around apparel, and it's. I think over the last 10 years, our society's gotten better about talking about the impact of food and our in our food systems, but but apparel has been um, not as much of a focus. Um, and so when I was looking, I'm I'm always looking for hats without logos that are made sustainably. I couldn't find anything. I'd finish on Ken's campaign and uh, just decided to start a hat company. Um, it's sort of like- As people old, do. As yeah, people do. As people do. Um, and there's just no one doing it. I would have gladly been a customer and done something for yeah. some other company, does something else. But yeah. there's this opening. I felt like people are looking for more sustainable things. They're not necessarily looking to put like, you know, Under Armour on their forehead. Um, and I really liked the idea of, I got to know Timberland a little bit when I was in a core member and that was my sort of introduction to sort of mission driven for-profit businesses, mm-hmm. um, sort of that intersection. And so I just, uh, I'd always sort of envisioned myself starting a, a, a mission driven for-profit business. And the more I understood the details about how dirty our, our peril supply chain is and how toxic it is to the environment, to workers, um, uh, the more excited I got about in this particular category of baseball hats doing something um, because there's no one doing it. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, we're about four years old. We're super small, but growing and um, everything we do is sustainable. So for example, our organic cotton uses no chemicals and 80% less fresh water. Um, a fun fact for the viewers, uh, listeners, it takes 1800 gallons of water to raise the cotton for one pair of jeans. Oh my God. 1800 liters, excuse me. Right, 800 for one pair of jeans. One pair of yeah, jeans. That's yeah. the conventional cotton. Organic cotton is 80% less than that. So that's just like, I mean, that's a staggering amount of fresh yeah. water at the time when water is a pro, is, is going to grow in crisis, at least fresh yep. water. So yep. anyway, that's just a little bit about it. And we're, we're focused on our little, our little part of the apparel world, but we mm-hmm. think that, um, 
we want to be an example of not just a great product, but also doing more around the storytelling of what sustainable apparel can be and why it matters so much. Because you just don't think about stuff you don't put in your, you know, food we think about because you put it in our body. Clothes we think about less because it doesn't feel as sort of invasive or sort of, we don't, we don't put it in our body, so we don't think about it as much, but it is something that seriously needs to change um, yeah. the future of the planet and all the people who are out there harvesting those crops and working with those chemicals and like, mm-hmm. is not is not good for them. Love it. Love so it. I'm also, yeah, yeah, I'm also somebody who who does not like being kind of a walking logo. Uh, yeah. and and appreciates the the sustainability. So it's awesome. If people want to check it out, where can they learn more? Storyhats.com. Storied hat, yeah. Storyhats.com. Check it out. Yeah. Awesome. So one last question for you. Yeah. So you've really found ways to serve powerfully uh in the political world in in unique ways what's your advice for servant leaders who are listening to this and they're wondering how can they continue to serve what's your advice for them um well a few things come to mind one is i think um you know if you're someone who's focused on direct service to think about, you know, some of the programs at New Politics and, and it's, you know, obviously you can talk better than I can about it, but it's not about committing to anything other than committing to sort of reflect on yourself and your journey and what you're, you know, what you're thinking about for your future. It's not, you know, you're not signing up to run for office. You're not filing your papers on day one. Um, you're really thinking about yourself in a deeper way. So I think if you're someone who's thinking about how do I have the most change in the world or how do I think about myself um, as a leader evolving over time, that this, that, uh, you know, uh, the new politics programs is just a great place to sort of think through that journey with support, both with, you know, facilitators, but also with peers. Um, so I think that's a great place to just think about for, for anybody. Um, and then I also think like one of the parts about servant leadership, and I think a lot of people who are sort of just focused on heads down leadership is that, um, they don't always sort of, um, think of themselves in the political arena. So if you're someone who's already sort of in the political arena, like who's someone in your life who you could say, Hey, have you thought about this and sort of getting Mm -hmm. them invested Mm -hmm. and possibly thinking about their own journey and what's next for them. And, um, you know, I think we all have people in our lives who we respect as leaders, um, who we think would make great politics, you know, great policymakers or great campaign staffers. Um, and could sort of think about how they could um, bring their servant leadership to the political arena, but haven't had anyone nudge them. So I think we could all think about who do we want, who would we like to represent us, and you know, and where are they, and can we nudge someone in our life um, to think about that? So those are those are two things that come to mind. But I'm just a big believer in all the programs that you're running and and your policies running, and so I think it's just. It isn't. This isn't meant to be sort of a shameless plug for the organization we. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, like, didn't totally mean to go there, but no, we'll no, take but, it. We'll take no, it. No, but it, yeah. it, it, it is like there isn't. I don't think a lot out there about like yeah. if you really need that sort of support and guidance to think about your own journey, um, and what's next for you, um, and to really do that deep reflection. Like I said, both with facilitator and with peers. So I think that's just a really a really great place to start. Fantastic. Well, Zach Morin, thank you so much. I, you know, as, as somebody else whose life has been changed by national service, I'm just so grateful for the leadership and the work you've done over the years to grow that movement. Um, and just thank you for your sharing your totally fascinating story with our, yeah. with our listeners today. Really appreciate it. Love doing it. And thanks for everything you and the team are doing every day and uh, grateful for the opportunity to talk to you.
This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. If you're a fan of what we're doing with this podcast, I invite you to become a subscriber and give us a positive rating. It's a small act that helps us out in a big way. And if you believe in the work that we're doing at New Politics, please consider donating via our website to support our efforts to revitalize American democracy. I'll leave you with this question, as always. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.